Welcome to the Bible for My Ordinary Life podcast. My name is Alicia Parker, and I live a pretty ordinary life, and I really enjoy studying and teaching the Bible. I believe the Bible is more than just a collection of interesting stories. It's God's communication to humankind, a revelation about who He is and how we fit into the story He is telling. Even if we feel like our personal story is a little bit ordinary. The Bible includes 66 individual books with a unifying theme, God desires a relationship with us. So I'm glad you're here, and I hope by the time we're done, you've learned a little bit more about who God is and the relationship he desires to have with you. Hi everyone, I'm so glad you're here today. We're in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, and today we're going to look at one of Jesus' most famous miracles, which is commonly titled the Feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle, other than his resurrection, recorded by all four gospel writers. Each gospel writer tells his narrative in their own style. It's similar to if you have a shared experience with one or more people and you're together telling the story to someone who wasn't there, you would each tell it from your perspective. One of you might include details, another wouldn't. You might summarize things in a way where someone else might give a lot of explanation. Even if the stories come out with some differences, it doesn't make them contradictory. It's just that we all have a unique lens in which we look at the world, and then we process that information and share it out according to our filter, our understanding, our personality, and our values. The gospel writers are just like that. So today, we're going to look at John's telling of the story, and then flip over and compare how the others told the same story. By doing this, we will get a more complete picture of the events that occurred. Okay, so let's get started in the first few verses of chapter 6. John, our narrator, tells us, starting in verse 1, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. So Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. True to form, John gives us a transition from his last story and provides setting details for us. Remember, we left off in chapter 5 with Jesus in Jerusalem for some type of festival, but we weren't told which one. He healed a man on the Sabbath and told the man to pick up his mat. The Pharisees were really miffed because that was against their law, and so they confronted Jesus. In our last episode, episode 10, we studied Jesus' lengthy response where he very clearly claimed to be equal with God and provided four witnesses to his claims. Now we transition right to this narrative. We don't know how long of a time has elapsed, but we're at the time of the Passover. Remember back in chapter 2? We studied how Jesus came into Jerusalem for a Passover and cleaned out the temple because of all the thievery going on in there. He also encountered Nicodemus around that time. So it's likely been a year since all of that happened, and once again it's Passover time. Jesus has crossed the Sea of Galilee, which John points out is also called the Sea of Tiberias, and has a huge crowd that's followed him. If you tuned in for episode 7, we talked a little bit about the geography of Israel, how it's like a rectangle and why the geography was important to the story of the woman at the well. The Sea of Galilee is in the northern part of the rectangle, and Jerusalem is in the southern part. So although it's near the time of Passover, Jesus and apparently this large crowd have not quite yet traveled to Jerusalem for the festival, but they're probably headed that way. 
he is still in the northern part near this large sea. And what's interesting about the Sea of Galilee is that it's surrounded by mountains, and this geography makes it really unpredictable for weather patterns on this body of water. Storms can crop up at any time and be quite violent, but we'll get to that shortly. So Jesus crosses the sea and arrives at a place where he can get up on a mountainous area, and this massive crowd follows him. John doesn't tell us why Jesus crossed the sea, but Matthew does. In Matthew 14, 6, we read this story. But when Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on the platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. Then the disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported to Jesus. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. And this is the backstory to what we have here in John. Jesus is sad. His cousin, his frontrunner, has been brutally murdered. Jesus wants to get away for a bit and grieve. Matthew tells us he withdrew to a remote place to be alone. And if you are listening in real time, it's May 2020, and we are in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. My whole family has been home for two months now, working and schooling under the same roof. And although I love my family, I find that I am almost never alone. I'm not one to need a lot of alone time, but after a while, you start to notice that a little alone time is a good thing. I do get out and try to go running by myself, but sometimes a person just needs to be alone. And that's where Jesus is right now. Ah, but Jesus, he's so compassionate. Matthew tells us in the next verse, verse 14, as he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd, felt compassion for them, and healed their sick. Even in the midst of his own grief and desire to be alone, Jesus put aside his needs and cared for the people around him. It's such a beautiful picture of God's love and selflessness toward us. Let's turn back into John and read a little further into the story. I'm starting now in verse 5. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. I do love John's perspective. He always has a little inside information for us. Did you notice that he tells us that Jesus asks Philip this question to test Philip? Jesus already knew he was going to do a miracle but he wants to draw something out of Philip and the other disciples. He's growing their faith. These guys have already seen a tremendous number of miracles. Jesus has healed sick people, turned water into wine, slipped away from angered crowds unharmed, and now he's presented with an issue of hungry people. Did you notice that Philip doesn't even consider that Jesus could do a miracle? Where does his solution lie? In human money their immediate, tangible resources. 
In Matthew's telling of the story, he doesn't provide the detail about Philip that John does, but he does add some more of the conversation that took place. Picking back up in verse 15 of Matthew, it says, When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness, and it is already late. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. Mark says something very similar, but adds just a bit to it. In chapter 6, verse 35, he says, When it was already late, his disciples approached him and said, This place is a wilderness, and it's already late. Send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat, he responded. They said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And here is Luke's version of the story. Chapter 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. He took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethesda. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and cured those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging, because we are in a deserted place here. You give them something to eat, he told them. So all four gospel writers paint the same picture of Jesus healing and teaching this massive crowd, and it's late in the day and people are getting hungry, including the disciples, I'm sure. And what's their solution? Send these people away. Hey, Jesus, ministry was fun for a while, and it was really great to see you work all those miracles, but now I'm tired and I'm hungry and maybe even a little hangry, and the work is endless, and these people are needy, and there's no way we can meet all their needs. So can you just press pause and send them away so we could go huddle up and find some comfort food, just us? Now, I don't know that any of them thought those words. I'm just extrapolating based on the story and mixing in my context as a 21st century Westerner who's been involved in church ministry a long time. But suffice to say, the disciples were thinking in very practical terms. There are too many people. It's late and they need to eat. It's time to send them on their way so they can find something to eat on their own. We see here that they mention denarii, and of course, they have a money system we're not familiar with. In each account, we see the phrase 200 denarii. Philip specifically says that wouldn't be enough to buy bread to feed them all. Plus, they are in a remote place. Philip also notes that where would they even get enough bread? They are up on the side of a mountain with thousands of people, and it's not like they have access to large supermarkets. Bread was sold in a marketplace. But in those days, it's not like there would be enough in one spot to feed 5,000 people. In fact, I don't know that I could go to a store near me and find enough to feed 5,000 people. Plus, as we read a little further, we'll see it's actually much more than 5,000. But we'll get to that shortly. So back to John, verse 8. Philip has just told Jesus, even if we bought 200 denarii worth of bread, we couldn't feed them. Then John tells us, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Then Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, 
he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this really is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus knew that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We've come to the turning point in the story. A problem was presented and Jesus asked Philip for a solution. Philip and the other disciples considered only the tangible literal possibilities and then John tells us that Andrew mentions a little boy has two fish and five loaves of bread. Now again, don't think like a 21st century Westerner who goes to a local grocery store and buys a loaf of bread that has a plastic wrap and a little twisty tie. That is not the kind of loaf of bread a first century Jewish boy would be carrying. He has five small pieces of bread. These loaves are probably single servings that could be maybe split between two people or easily consumed by one person, almost like a large cracker. It's not a lot of bread. None of the other three gospel writers note that it was Andrew who actually presented the food as from a boy, but they all consistently report that Jesus was offered two fish and five loaves of bread. So Jesus tells the disciples to have the people sit down. The word here for people is anthropos. It's where we get the word anthropology, and it literally means people. It's not gender specific. It includes both males and females. But then in the next sentence, John and the other gospel writers also do this, says that there are approximately 5,000 men. That word is anyar, which literally means male. So my point here is that there are a lot of people, and of those, 5,000 of them are men. If we count women and children, this crowd could be well over 20,000. We really don't know. And honestly, the exact number, it doesn't matter. What does matter is that Jesus takes two fish and five pieces of bread and feeds them all until they're satisfied. And then the disciples pick up 12 full baskets of leftovers. Try to imagine this with me. Let's say you and I are first century Jews, and there is this buzz all over our towns about a man who can heal the sick and make the crippled whole again. We're on our way to the home country to celebrate Passover in the city of Jerusalem, and we realize that he's in the same area where we are. So we decide to go check this out for ourselves because there's no cell phones and there's no YouTube of him or hashtag or Facebook fan group. It's just word of mouth and evidence of it can only be proven if you see him for yourself. So we head out to a mountainside and we listen to this man teach and heal the sick for several hours, but it's getting late and our stomachs are rumbling a bit. His 12 main followers tell us to sit down and organize us in groups of 50. We're wondering what's next and we watch Jesus from a distance. It looks like he has two small fish and five loaves of bread and he's praying over them, holding them up to the heaven, saying a blessing. Huh. Next, he starts breaking pieces off and giving them to his disciples and they are walking through the crowds distributing the food. Oddly enough, the disciples keep going back to Jesus for more pieces and each time he has more to give. They finally get to us and we help ourselves to enough fish and bread to feel 
fully satisfied. And we watch as they work their way through the whole crowd. Everyone is eating and talking and laughing. Jesus is still breaking pieces of bread and fish off. Weren't there just two fish? Didn't he start with just five loaves? Shouldn't that all have been long gone? Well, now the disciples are walking through the crowd and they're picking up leftovers. You and I are stuffed. So we hand them some bread we couldn't even eat. They put it in a basket. When they're done, there are 12 baskets lined up by Jesus. And we can see that they are heaped with fish and bread. And guess what's on our mind? It's a scripture verse we're well acquainted with. We've heard it in the temple since we were just kids. Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among our own brothers. You must listen to him. The people were given manna, bread from heaven, when Moses was their leader. Could this be our promised Messiah? We can hear others murmuring about this too. Could he save us from Roman occupation? Just like Moses saved our ancestors from Egypt? Could we make him our king? Could we have our own nation and break free from this oppression? Let's rally around him and make him our king. Did you imagine it with me? This crowd was physically hungry and Jesus met their needs and in their next breath they wanted to satiate their political hunger for freedom by forcing Jesus to be their king. John is the only gospel writer to give us this detail about the people's intention. But Jesus avoids this by heading to the mountaintop by himself. His purpose is not to be their political savior. His purpose is to be their spiritual savior. The next scene is also recorded in three of the four Gospels. John gives us a shorter version than the others, so let's look at what John says and then fill in some details with Matthew and Luke's narrative. In verse 16, John says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. Then a high wind arose, and the seas began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Our earlier discussion of the Sea of Galilee's geography comes into play in this section. John tells us that Jesus' disciples went down to get into the boats after the miraculous feeding. Matthew tells us this extra detail starting in chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Mark says it this way in chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. So with these three narrators, we have a complete picture of Jesus sending the disciples by boat into the Sea of Galilee, Jesus dismissing the crowd, and then Jesus headed up the mountain to pray, finally alone. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus retreating alone to pray, especially after long, hard days of ministry. I don't know about you, but I find it compelling that Jesus regularly needed alone time with the Father. I want to have the same type of desire to find refreshment in alone time with God. Sometimes when we feel spent or exhausted, 
it's easier, especially in this culture, to just binge on Netflix or scroll through social media or choose some mindless task to engage in as we quote-unquote chill. But when Jesus was exhausted and needing downtime, he chose prayer. This reminder is an inspiration to me to model my time after how Jesus spent his. So it's definitely evening time, and the disciples are in a boat, and Jesus is on a mountain, and the crowd is at home or in local inns and getting ready for bed. And John tells us that it's already dark, and a strong wind starts blowing, and the seas are getting rough. They've rowed three or four miles, and suddenly they see Jesus walking on the water, which naturally freaked them out. Matthew gives us a few more details about this experience. He says, Around three in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Mark tells a very similar story. Matthew goes on and records the specific experience of Peter, who says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter jumps out of the boat, walks toward Jesus, then looks down and realizes, ah, I'm walking on water in the middle of a storm. And he panics and he starts to sink. Jesus, of course, reaches out, saves him, and they both get in the boat. But did you notice the interesting detail in the last verse I read of John? He tells us, then they were willing to take him on board and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. So the Sea of Galilee is several miles across. The ancient Greeks and first century Jews did not measure things in miles. In fact, pretty much only Americans use miles for distance measurements. And when you take the original Greek words and measurements here, you get about three miles or so. And if you consider the length of the Sea of Galilee, that approximately puts this boat in the middle of this sea. Remember, it's stormy and they're being tossed around. Measuring the distance traveled is probably not the most important priority to them. The point is, they are somewhere in the middle of the sea, far from any type of shore, and John notes that as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, they arrive on the shore. Matthew tells us this. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly, you are the Son of God. I don't think the disciples had been doubting Jesus and his claims. But imagine you're in this boat, and you literally think you are going to die. It's dark. It's 3 a.m. It's storming, and you're far from any shore. Suddenly, what appears to be a ghost is walking toward your boat. You are freaking out, and you hear a familiar voice tell you to have courage. It's me, Jesus. So you settle down a bit, and then your buddy Peter decides to get out and walk on the water, which he does, well, for a minute or so, and then he starts to drown because he takes his eyes off Jesus. Jesus rescues Peter. They both get in the boat. The winds immediately cease, and you look up, and you are miraculously at your destination. I think it's perfectly natural that they worship him and affirm that he is the Son of God. If you've ever had a near-death experience and you escape unharmed, isn't it natural to say, thank you, God? That's what they're doing here. In the last 12 hours, these guys have seen Jesus heal sick people, feed somewhere around 20,000 people from two fish and five pieces of bread. They've seen him walk on water in the middle of a storm. They've seen Peter walk on water. Jesus, rescue Peter. Jesus immediately calmed the storm. 
and then miraculously arrive at their destination. Their minds have to be spinning with all of this. And so, yes, worship and confession of who Jesus is would be a natural response. They realize at this moment they are in the presence of God himself. But we'll see this ebb and flow throughout the Gospels of their faith. Not unlike our own faith, their circumstances and their hearts often dictated their level of faith and depth of belief. Don't be too hard on these disciples as we study their reactions and experiences. Yes, they had the incredible advantage of having Jesus right there with them. But we have an incredible advantage of having the whole story. We have the entire New Testament. It's like we have hindsight. And still sometimes it's hard to have faith, isn't it? Sometimes the storms of life toss us around. And Jesus doesn't seem to be anywhere near us. In fact, we can't even see where we need to get to because our circumstances are raining down on us and the wind is howling in our ears. But we cannot look at God's character through the lens of our circumstances. We must look at our circumstances through the lens of God's character. He is good. He is faithful. He knew those disciples would face that storm without him in the boat. He knew they'd be scared and would fear for their very lives, but he did not abandon them. And the same God who walked on that water and climbed into their boat can walk through your storm and climb into your boat. If you feel like you have an impossible task in front of you, he can multiply your fish and loaves. He can calm your storm, and he can bring you to your destination in the blink of an eye. In all these examples, Jesus had a purpose for his miracles. We're going to see in the next episode that Jesus uses the feeding of the 5,000 to teach a really tough concept to the crowds the very next day. And as a result, many of his followers will abandon him. He used the calming of the water to solidify the faith of his disciples in who he was. He used Peter walking on the water to teach them to keep their eyes on him, not their circumstances or fears. So my point is that Jesus is not a miracle vending machine. Just because you have a desire for a specific outcome in a situation doesn't mean you can say, Jesus, I need you to calm the storm right now. And he will. He did it in this specific situation for a reason. Notice the disciples never asked him to calm the storm. He just did. He may keep your storm going for a specific reason. When we look to him for miracles, sometimes he says, that's just not what I have for you right now. And it's our job, like the disciples, to trust him for who he is, not just because of what he can do. And that is the lesson he is about to reinforce to the crowds he just fed. But you'll have to tune into the next episode to hear more about that. Until then, look at your circumstances through the lens of God's character and feel free to stop and worship him because of who he is, not just what he can do, just as his disciples did. Thanks so very much for taking the time to listen to today's episode of The Bible for My Ordinary Life. I hope you learned something and our time together encouraged your personal relationship with God. Until next time, be sure to check out my companion website at www.bibleforTheOrdinaryLife.com.